0: Section 7 of Lady Into Fox This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Halliday Lady Into Fox by David Garnett Section 7 One day he tried taking with him the stereoscope and a pack of cards. But though his Sylvia was affectionate and amiable enough to let him put the stereoscope over her muzzle, yet she would not look through it but kept turning her head to lick his hand. And it was plain to him that now she had quite forgotten the use of the instrument. It was the same, too, with the cards, for with them she was pleased enough, but only delighted to bite at them and flip them about with her paws, and never considering for a moment whether they were diamonds or clubs, or hearts or spades, or whether the card was an ace or not. So it was evident that she had forgotten the nature of cards, too. Thereafter he only brought them things which she could better enjoy, that is, sugar, grapes, raisins, and butcher's meat. By and by, as the summer wore on, the cubs came to know him, and he them, so that he was able to tell them easily apart, and then he christened them. For this purpose he brought a little bowl of water, sprinkled them as if in baptism, and told them that he was their godfather, and gave each of them a name, calling them Sorrel, Casper, Selwyn, Esther, and Angelica. Sorrel was a clumsy little beast of a cheery, and indeed puppyish, disposition. Caspar was fierce, the largest of the five, even in his play he would always bite, and gave his godfather many a sharp nip as time went on. Esther was of a dark complexion, a true brunette, and very sturdy. Angelica, the brightest red and the most exactly like her mother, while Selwyn was the smallest cub, of a very prying, inquisitive, and cunning temper, but delicate and undersized. Thus Mr. Tebrick had a whole family now to occupy him, and indeed came to love them with very much of a father's love and partiality. His favorite was Angelica, who reminded him so much of her mother in her pretty ways, because of a gentleness which was lacking in the others, even in their play. After her and his affections came Selwyn, whom he soon saw was the most intelligent of the whole litter indeed he was so much more quick-witted than the rest that mr Tebrick was led into speculating as to whether he had not inherited something of the human from his dam thus very early he learnt to know his name and would come when he was called and what was stranger still he learnt the names of his brothers and sisters before they came to do themselves besides all this he was something of a young philosopher for though his brother caspar tyrannized over him he put up with it all with an unruffled temper he was not however above playing tricks on the others And one day, when Mr. Tebrick was by, he made believe that there was a mouse in a hole some little way off. Very soon he was joined by Sorrel, and presently by Casper and Esther. When he had got them all digging, it was easy for him to slip away. And then he came to his godfather with a sly look, sat down before him, and smiled, and then jerked his head over towards the others and smiled again, and wrinkled his brows, so that Mr. Tebrick knew, as well as if he had spoken, that the youngster was saying, Have I not made fools of them all? He was the only one that was curious about Mr. Tebrick. He made him take out his watch, put his ear to it, considered it, and wrinkled up his brows in perplexity. On the next visit it was the same thing. He must see the watch again, and again think it over. But clever as he was, little Selwyn could never understand it. And if his mother remembered anything about watches, it was a subject which she never attempted to explain to her children. One day Mr. Tebrick left the earth as usual, and ran down the slope to the road, when he was surprised to find a carriage waiting before his house and a coachman walking about near his gate, mr Tebrick went in and found that his visitor was waiting for him. It was his wife's uncle. They shook hands, though the Reverend Canon Fox did not recognize him immediately, and mr Tebrick led him into the house. The clergyman looked about him a good deal, at the dirty and disorderly rooms, and when mr Tebrick took him into the drawing room, it was evident that it had been unused for several months, the dust lay so thickly on all the furniture. After some conversation on different topics, Canon Fox said to him, I have called really to ask about my niece. Mr. Tebrick was silent for some time and then said, She is quite happy now. Ah, indeed. I have heard she is not living with you any longer. No, she is not living with me. She is not far away. I see her every day now. Indeed. Where does she live? In the woods with her children. I ought to tell you that she has changed her shape. She is a fox. The Reverend Canon Fox got up. He was alarmed, and everything that mr Tebrick said confirmed what he had been led to expect he would find at Rylands. When he was outside, however, he asked mr Tebrick, "You don't have many visitors now, eh?" "No, I never see anyone if I can avoid it. You are the first person I have spoken to for months." "Quite right, too, my dear fellow; I quite understand, in the circumstances." Then the cleric shook him by the hand, got into his carriage, and drove away. At any rate, he said to himself, there will be no scandal. He was relieved also because mr Tebrick had said nothing about going abroad to disseminate the Gospel. Canon Fox had been alarmed by the letter, had not answered it, and thought that it was always better to let things be, and never to refer to anything unpleasant. He did not at all want to recommend mr Tebrick to the Bible Society if he were mad. His eccentricities would never be noticed at Stokoe. Besides that, mr Tebrick had said he was happy. He was sorry for mr Tebrick too and he said to himself that the queer girl his niece must have married him because he was the first man she had met he reflected also that he was never likely to see her again and said aloud when he had driven some little way not an affectionate disposition then to his coachman no that's all right drive on hopkins when mr Tebrick was alone he rejoiced exceedingly in his solitary life he understood or so he fancied what it was to be happy and that he had found complete happiness now living from day to day "'careless of the future, surrounded every morning "'by playful and affectionate little creatures "'whom he loved tenderly, and sitting beside their mother, "'whose simple happiness was the source of his own. "'True happiness,' he said to himself, "'is to be found in bestowing love. "'There is no such happiness as that of the mother for her babe "'unless I have attained it in mine for my vixen and her children.' "'With these feelings he waited impatiently for the hour on the morrow "'when he might hasten to them once more.' When, however, he had toiled up the hillside to the earth, taking infinite precaution not to tread down the bracken or make a beaten path which might lead others to that secret spot, he found to surprise that Sylvia was not there, and that there were no cubs to be seen either. He called to them, but it was in vain, and at last he laid himself on the mossy bank beside the earth and waited. For a long while, as it seemed to him, he lay very still, with closed eyes, straining his ears to hear every rustle among the leaves or any sound that might be the cubs stirring in the earth. At last, he must have dropped asleep, for he woke suddenly with all his senses alert, and opening his eyes, found a full-grown fox within six feet of him, sitting on its haunches, like a dog, and watching his face with curiosity. Mr. Tebrick saw instantly that it was not Sylvia when he moved. the fox got up and shifted his eyes, but still stood his ground and Mr. Tebrick recognized him then for the dog fox he had seen once before, carrying a hare. It was the same dark beast with a large white tag to his brush. Now the secret is out, and Mr. Tebrick could see his rival before him. Here was the real father of his godchildren, who could be certain of their taking after him, and leading over again his wild and rakish life. Mr. Tebrick stared for a long time at the handsome rogue, who glanced back at him with distrust and watchfulness patent on his face, but now without defiance too, and it seemed to Mr. Tebrick as if there was also a touch of cynical humor in his look, as if he said, "By gad, we two have been strangely brought together." And to the man, at any rate, it seemed strange that they were thus linked, and he wondered if the love his rival there bare to his vixen and his cubs were the same thing in kind as his own. "'We would both of us give our lives for theirs,' he said to himself, as he reasoned upon it. "'We both of us are happy chiefly in their company. What pride this fellow must feel to have such a wife, and such children taking after him. And has he not reason for his pride? He lives in a world where he is beset with a thousand dangers. For half the year he is hunted, everywhere dogs pursue him, men lay traps for him, or menace him, he owes nothing to another. But he did not speak, knowing that his words would only alarm the fox. Then in a few minutes he saw the dog-fox look over his shoulder, and then he trotted off as lightly as a gossamer veil blown on the wind. And, in a minute or two more, back he comes with his vixen and the cubs all around him. Seeing the dog-fox thus surrounded by vixen and cubs was too much for Mr. Tebrick. in spite of all his philosophy a pang of jealousy shot through him. He could see that Sylvia had been hunting with her cubs, and also that she had forgotten that he would come that morning, for she started when she saw him, and though she carelessly licked his hand, he could see that her thoughts were not with him. Very soon she led her cubs into the earth. The dog-fox had vanished, and Mr. Tebrick was again alone. He did not wait longer, but went home. Now was his peace of mind all gone. The happiness, which he had flattered himself the night before, he knew so well and how to enjoy, seemed now but a fool's paradise, in which he had been living. A hundred times this poor gentleman bit his lip, drew down his torvous brows, and stamped his foot, and cursed himself bitterly, or called his lady bitch. He could not forgive himself neither, that he had not thought of the damned dog-fox before, but all the while he had let the cubs frisk around him, each one a proof that a dog-fox had been at work with his vixen. Yes, jealousy was now in the wind, and every circumstance which had been a reason for his felicity the night before was now turned into a monstrous feature of his nightmare. With all this, Mr. Tebrick so worked upon himself that for the time being he had lost his reason. Black was white, and white was black, and he was resolved that on the morrow he would dig the vile brood of foxes out and shoot them, and so free himself at last from his hellish plague. All that night he was in this mood, and in agony, as if he had broken in the crown of a tooth and bitten on the nerve. But as all things will have an ending, so at last Mr. Tebrick, worn out and wearied by his loath passion of jealousy, fell into an uneasy and tormented sleep. End of Section 7.